Thanks be to God. All right, we have one more fun thing today. <laughs> Don't worry, Brandon's not going anywhere. Uh, but one thing that we love in this church is leadership development. One thing we pray for a lot is church planting. And so Brandon, you know, over the years has expressed a desire to plant a church and has begun the assessment process and some of the training process. And our real prayer is that sometime in the next few years we can, we can plant some churches, right? And so part of that is, is uh, well, let's give Brandon an opportunity to preach his first sermon here. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, Brandon has done a good job of serving in a number of areas faithfully. We love you, even though you look like... Um, what is it? Come on. You look like one of the, the... Either a Disney prince who received the Holy Spirit, um, or you look like Olaf's best friend in Frozen. There you but, go. All right. All right. God, we pray for our friend. We love him, and we uh, love your word, and we love uh, the ways in which you've used him in other capacities, and we pray that you'd use him here today to shape your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim. He had to get one of those in there, right? <laughs> oh, man. So one thing that I have recently come to learn about myself is that I am an evangelist. And I know what you're thinking. That's a pretty bold thing to come out and say for your first sermon. Uh, but allow me, allow me to explain. You see, if you were to talk to anyone who's close to me, any one of my friends, you would realize that I'm constantly preaching the gospel of whatever movie I've recently seen. <laughs> or AMC A-List, according to John Crawford, which you should join. Or uh, the gym that I go to. Or maybe a restaurant that I recently tried that's actually just okay, but they have a great Instagram, right? <laughs> But no, but to many people in my life, uh, one of the things that I have become, have been named is the book recommendation guy. I'm, stand, I'm staring at a couple of you who I have this week recommended different books. So this is very surreal right now. Uh, but growing up, I wasn't much of a reader. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, in college, I began to read uh, more and more, and I haven't really stopped since. Even through seminary, I've enjoyed reading, which for some of you who have gone through seminary, you realize that, uh, how extreme of a statement that is. Uh, but my wife recently converted me to Kindle, so I guess that's another thing that I have to start evangelizing to people. Uh, the other day, I was browsing uh, the top books in the nonfiction section for Kindle, and I noticed a pattern. Uh, that one type of book was the most popular uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, uh, and I think even longer than that. Self-help books, self-improvement books. No matter where you look, uh, whether it's Amazon or even New York Times, I checked, you will see a bunch of different kinds of self-help books, self-improvement books. And uh, part of it might be because it's January and everyone's trying to live their best life, own their moment, fulfill all of the resolutions, sure. Uh, but this has been the case for quite a while. And uh, you'll see lots of different kinds of self-help books. You'll see books uh, for productivity, like Atomic Habits, which I'm sure a lot of us have read, or Feel Good Productivity. Uh, you'll see books like Symphony of Mission by Jim Mullen. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I had to get that dig in after the Disney Prince comment. So uh, you'll see books for mindset though, right? David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me, or The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Word I Will Never Say. <laughs> Even the cookbooks have their variety of self-help philosophy. They're either about simple or healthy, or it's some sort of crash or fad diet. Uh, the common theme with these books is simple. 
they all claim to have the answer. They all claim to have the secret to the way of life. Just follow these steps and you'll be happy. Uh, But what's interesting is that all of these books, whether it's a, a mindset book, a productivity book, or even cookbooks, have contradictory suggestions or philosophies on what the best way of life uh, entails. For some of the books, it's about the grind, the hustle, right? Uh, You work yourself to the bone now and you can sleep when you're dead. Uh, Other books are about mindfulness and margin and just curating a space in your life. There are books on how to care. There are books on how to not care. Eat everything eat nothing except for lettuce between 12.30 and 12.37 p.m., and that's it. (laughs) Vegan, carnivore. Pleasure, pain. Self, or helping others for the sake of patting your own ego. Am I right? No matter where you look, you see different answers to what the best way of life is. And seeing all of these different answers leaves one confused. Like if you were to just look at the Amazon or New York Times bestseller list, just looking for, man, what's gonna meet my longing? What am I missing? You would be left confused by seeing all of these different answers. What is the best way? How can I get through life or live it well? And another thing that these books have in common that you'll see is they all tell you that you are the master of your own destiny the captain of your own ship. You hold the keys to what it looks like to transform your life and you need to do what you need for your own good. Do you see what's wrong with this picture? There are no shortage of people in this world telling you that their way of life is best, telling you that they claim to have the answer. And I'm pretty sure if it were as simple as just reading one of these books and doing what it says, many of us would have a near perfect life filled with margin, rest, and we'd all have six-pack abs. (laughs) No, the answer, right, is not to simply work harder, but is it to quit your job and go on some sort of eat, pray, love journey? What is it? Is it to only eat steak for every meal for the rest of your life? And as much as I wish it was this last one, uh, my vegetarian wife is very glad that it isn't. (laughs) In a world full of authors and others that are telling us that their way of life is correct, We need to hear from Jesus and what he has to say for us today. So we're going to pick up in Matthew 11, which is at the beginning of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, But as you're turning, uh, I'm going to pray for us because I need it. Lord Jesus, God, we just uh, are ready to hear what you have to say through us through your word today. Uh, God, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for what you've done. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, for promising us your presence uh, God, give me, a prop, give me a, a confidence to speak your word boldly today and just help us to have ears to hear whatever you would say to us today, whatever kind of life you may be inviting us into. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, beginning in Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What we recognize through the first part of this passage is that discipleship to Jesus 
is for those who recognize their need. Discipleship to Jesus is for those who recognize their need. Uh, This is Jesus's seemingly public prayer uh, to the Father. He's thanking them for the nature of how he reveals himself to people. It says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. And uh, I don't think he's referencing actual children here. A commentary that I read on this is that little children uh, is a metaphor that Jesus refers to those who respond to God by acknowledging their dependence on him. Said otherwise, those who recognize their need. And the way that God often reveals himself is through need and to those who recognize it. Those who are aware of their lack of self-sufficiency. Those who are needy those who recognize their need. And Jesus is saying these words to a culture that would take issue with this statement. Unlike the little ones, the little children who recognize their need, the wise and understanding are the opposite category of people that Jesus shares in this passage. They represent those who feel they have no need for God. And at the top of this list, I'm sure, in Jesus' mind, uh, were those who were at the top of Jewish society, which were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the religious teachers that Jesus would often critique and clash with philosophically. And the Pharisees, just for some context, they held tightly to the Jewish law, the 613 commandments that come from uh, the law and the prophets, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew uh, Bible. And uh, most Jews tried to follow these laws because uh, this is what they received from God uh, back when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. Meanwhile, all this was happening during the occupation and oppression of God's people from the Roman Empire. This isn't just a TikTok trend, I promise. The the Roman Empire uh, had their boot over the neck of the Jewish people. And all of this was happening They were oppressed and occupied by Rome. And there was this promised Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament that all of God's people were longing for, longing to be freed from uh, the boot of Rome. And the Pharisees believed essentially that if they could follow the law as closely as possible, that it would maybe hasten the arrival of the Messiah. But Jesus arrives on the scene and critiques this. And he says that the only thing that you need is need. Instead of those who rely on status, what they can bring to the table, those who bank on their intellect or their education, even adherence perfectly to the law of Moses, God reveals himself to those who recognize their need. The only thing that you need is need. And if we look back at the text in verse 27, there's another interesting thing here where we see Jesus himself recognize his own identity Independence on his father. It says, All things have been committed to be to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. This is a profound section of scripture because it's Jesus recognizing his own dependence on the father as a son of the father, yet he's also acknowledging that he and the father are one, that he is God incarnate. This is Jesus sharing, essentially, that the Son is sovereign like the Father, that Jesus is God, that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and and to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Said differently, 
No one can come to God without accepting Jesus. No one can love and follow God without loving and following the way of Jesus. And one thing that I really love about this passage is that it highlights something that we are called to imitate, which is Jesus's dependence, his need on the Father. Yet it also highlights something that we never could. The fact that Jesus, through his incarnation, came to earth. God became flesh. The word became flesh, I love the message, it says, and moved into the neighborhood, came down to our level. We could never imitate that because that is the very thing, that very way of life that Jesus lived himself is what gives us life. And yet Jesus lived in such a way where God himself as a human was dependent and in need of communion with his father in order to show us what it means to be human, the proper way of life, the way to live. One of the clearest ways that I see someone recognize their own need in my life, cultivate a heart of dependence is through my daughter, Delilah. And uh, you'll, see, you'll see a picture right there. If I, uh, if I, if I didn't uh, convince you before, maybe uh, the cuteness will uh, convince you, right? No, I had to show my girls. But Delilah's four years old, and uh, it's clear why Jesus used the picture of little children in this text, because my girl is a walking sermon illustration. <laughs> She recognizes her need better and more often than any person I know. And it's fantastic. She's always asking me to hold her, to swing her around. Uh, in the backyard, I'll often throw her up very high, uh, probably irresponsibly high, but all my dads get it. Uh, and that is something that, one, makes my wife nervous, and two, does not get easier as her and I both get older. So I'm very thankful that I had her young. Uh, but she's four, so at this point, uh, you know, we're doing at least a decent job as parents. She is potty trained. Yet, uh, when, every time she has to go to the restroom, she makes it very clear that my wife, Amelia, or I need to accompany her uh, for the amount of time that could either be 30 seconds or 15 minutes. <laughs> All of life, am I right? <laughs> but talk about needy. All of my parents and aunties and uncles in the room said, yep. But uh, another example, I think, with Delilah is uh, the way that she also recognizes wherever she might be needed. Uh, and what that means is I'm trying to do household chores, especially on Fridays. That's kind of our chore day. But I take out the trash, do the dishes, all of these different things, maybe in the backyard, yard work. And yet who's following me around like a little duckling? Delilah. She's right there. Like, I'm, I'm looking to take out the trash really quickly or whatever, and then I have to worry about uh, her putting on shoes or a jacket or just clothes in general sometimes because she is four years old, is far uh, too old to have you running around in a diaper or underwear at that point, right? So she's just accompanying me along everywhere. She is following me. She feels like she is needed. And in my own selfishness and pragmatism, I can often feel like this is an inconvenience. I can often, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like uh, Amelia and I, like, like any decent parent, we want to eventually cultivate traits of independence in Delilah and Phoebe and my other daughter. And yet, according to Jesus, I'm the one who's wrong here. It's no wonder that Jesus used little children to describe those who recognize their need because children don't even need to recognize their need. That is the way that they naturally are. They are naturally needy. This is not something that Delilah has to cultivate. She has, hopefully, a loving father and mother who love her, so she is naturally needy. 
And somewhere along the way, we, a lot of us in the room as adults or teenagers or wherever we find ourselves, we lose our ability to be needy, to be reliant, to be dependent. And Amelia and I's job as Delilah and Phoebe's parents, it isn't actually to cultivate a heart of dependence, but it's to help them realize who they are to depend on. It's not a cultivate a heart of dependence. It's to help my girls realize who they are to depend on. And this happens by example. Jesus lived a life of dependence toward the Father. I need to recognize my need like my daughters. They teach us. I need to acknowledge that I am desperately without Jesus, and without him, I wouldn't be able to even do yard work or use the restroom. So do you recognize your need today? Are you like the little ones? Are you like little children? My daughter, Delilah, whom God is pleased to reveal himself to? Or do you think you're better off on your own? Personally, I have a spirit of self-reliance through a lot of different painful experiences, especially like working in church from early on. I started on staff at churches when I was 16. uh, And through a bunch of painful experiences, I've learned slowly that I struggle to trust people. I've had a lot of different mentors uh, really let me down. And uh, I have this spirit of self-reliance that if uh, I don't need to depend on anyone else, I can do it. Uh, I don't trust anyone to do things for me. I want to do them myself. And yet Jesus is telling me and he's telling you today to recognize your need for him. I think of what Jim said last week, preaching on John 15, that if we're not abiding in Jesus apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Maybe you're here today. For one reason or another, you found yourself back in church or you took a wrong turn and helped. They had coffee, so here you are. Uh, But you realize that the world, maybe the self-improvement books or the influencers that you follow, you realize that they don't have the answer to the best way of life what you've been searching for and longing for, you've yet to find. And you know that you need something. You're beginning to recognize your need, but you're not sure what you need. Let's read on in Matthew 11, verse 28, to see what Jesus has on offer. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There's good news for the needy, that we're able to receive rest through discipleship to Jesus. We're able to receive rest through discipleship to Jesus. And I can only imagine the comfort that many of the original hearers of this invitation may have felt. And I hope you feel that comfort today, that Jesus invites us and says, come all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' invitation here is for all those who recognize their need, all those who realize that the answer to life is not Uh, to grin and bear it for self-improvement. It's not detachment. It's not even achievement or adhering to the law perfectly, but it's to come to him, to take him up on his invitation to life and you will receive rest. 
And rest is definitely not something that the people of God were expecting from this promised Messiah. God's people were weary, sure, but they didn't want rest. They wanted revolution. They wanted liberation from Rome, liberated from the heavy burdens of oppression that the people of God had been carrying for generations. Many of those who Jesus spent time with desired liberation from the heavy burdens of the Pharisees from adding to the already heavy law. I think of later in this gospel of Matthew and uh, in Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and what they've added to the law. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. There's that same word in the text that Jesus says, burdens. So you had those who wanted relief from Rome, those who wanted relief from what the Pharisees have added to the law. Others desired liberation from the shame of their social status, the shame of who they are or what they've done. Can anyone here relate? Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people, as well as sick people and anyone to, them, to those whom the law or Pharisees deemed unclean or unworthy, they were unwilling to take on the burden of the law even on their best day. They were outcast, seen as other. And it is to all of these different kinds of people, as well as to us today in this room in Tempe, Arizona, that Jesus offers rest. But what does that mean? Does Jesus offer us a nap? Is Jesus offering a couple of self-help solutions like these books that many of us read, how to get our schedule together or our life together or to eat a different diet and it'll solve all your problems? No. We know that Jesus is offering rest to those who are burdened by the weight of the law and the weight of the burdens that life has dealt to them. But he's also using words that seem to contradict each other. Jesus is using an odd metaphor when he's talking about rest. He's talking about a yoke, which is a work instrument. What's, what's the deal with that? Are these opposite solutions? If we quickly Google searched the definition of a yoke, you'd know it, it's a wooden cross piece that's fastened over the necks of two animals. You can see a picture of it here, uh, where they typically uh, pull a plow or a cart to do uh, work. And Jesus is an odd illustration by him because it's a work instrument to illustrate rest. And Jesus is doing here what he often did as a teacher. He's using an everyday item or thing as a metaphor for life in the kingdom of God. Just like in our first movement where Jesus talks about little children, he's using a yoke as a simple metaphor for something much deeper that, uh, than a thing that attaches to animals. But children and animals, Jesus keeps it simple and I love it. The word yoke, it's an idiom or maybe a common metaphor uh, for being under the teaching of something or following the way of something or someone. And uh, many people in Jesus's day would talk about being under the yoke of the law or the Pharisees, uh, which means simply that they submitted to or followed the law. Uh, and another common use for it that's related to it is a yoke uh, was used in regards to following a teacher or a rabbi. 
to be a disciple or an apprentice, to follow a teacher or a rabbi around and learn from him as a student. This is what I think Jesus is getting at here. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, our king, did not come to the world as a traditional monarch. He didn't come, right, as a president or a prime minister. Uh, He didn't come as a warrior either, like King David, what people might have been expecting, but he came as a rabbi. He came as a teacher. And Jesus' claim here is that all of those who would come to him, that they would take on his yoke in his way of life and they would find rest for their souls, a deeper kind of rest. Uh, and soul here uh, in the Greek, it's not like a disembodied one. Like when you think of the word soul, uh, it, as it relates to rest, it's talking about a whole life kind of rest that, that meets our deepest longings and needs a rest that meets our deepest longings and needs, essentially what we've all been searching for. And Jesus is inviting all those who recognize that they need rest to a whole new way of life that really is life. I think of John 14 when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Or I think of John 10, that I come to bring life and life to the full. These are all related words that Jesus says. And here we see Jesus equating life with him as something better than whatever people are currently yoked to. Whatever people are currently under the teachings, whatever teacher or rabbi uh, that a person is currently following, Jesus says that his offer is better. It's a more restful yoke, but a yoke nonetheless a way that doesn't necessarily take away the hard things of life, but gives us rest in the midst of the hard things of life. That's an important distinction because uh, me, I'm tempted for my rest to look like escapism. Like if I had my way, I think my Sabbath day would look like video games, junk food, smoked meats, and uh, one of my favorite movies to this uh, membership that you guys should really all join, right? That's what I would think of when I think of rest, rest as an escapism. Uh, And maybe other people would think of rest as a kind of achievement thing, uh, rest to something, almost like it's reward oriented. That, oh, simply by our efforts, if I can work hard enough, I can achieve this rest that can only be achieved by the best of the best by our merit alone. This is not the kind of rest that Jesus talks about. This is the by grace through faith kind of rest that would allow us to experience rest even amidst suffering. This is a picture of Jesus sleeping on the boat while his disciples are afraid that uh, their boat's gonna tip over. And then Jesus is wake up, he's like, you have little faith and then calms the storm. The storm will not always be calmed in your life, but Jesus has promised his presence in the midst of it through his yoke of discipleship. Through his yoke of discipleship, we are able to experience a rest in the midst. And this world has no shortage of yokes, as our self-improvement books have made it evidently clear. But according to Jesus, all other yokes that we wear will result in a weary and burdened soul. It will not meet these existential, deeper needs that we all carry around. But wearing Jesus' yoke and following his way will provide rest in the midst of life, even the most hard things. The best things, the hard things, Jesus will provide us rest. And we even see this in the way that Jesus himself lived. Jesus did not escape the hard life. He entered right into it. 
And yet he experienced rest and refreshment through dependence on the Father. So are you tired this morning? Are you worn out? Maybe some of you are burned out on religion. Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Become like a child who doesn't even need to learn how to recognize their need. It's unforced. I won't lay any heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And this is the paraphrase of this passage from Eugene Peterson's message version. But my question for everyone today is what have you yoked yourself to? What teacher are you following around? For my fellow Christians in the room, people who claim to follow Jesus, what burdens have you added to Jesus's invitation? Because we are a fickle people. We are safe with the Father, yet we will often keep Jesus on this side and yoke something else to us. And what does that result in? Us getting pulled apart. I've often yoked myself to my own effort, what I can bring to the table, my lack of trust for other people or like me not wanting to let other people in. But Jesus says, come to me, take my yoke. Where have you added additions to Jesus's invitation as a Christian? Where have you added works back into the equation? Effort is great. Grace is not, another Eugene Peterson quote, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that we have been given through Jesus. So where have you added to Jesus's invitation? And to my friends who have yet to take Jesus up on his invitation to life, his offer to a better way, what is stopping you? Why not today? Jesus has made a way for you to live the eternal kind of life now. Not just in the quantity, not just with him forever, but in the quality. Through the gift of his grace, we are able to recognize our need. We are able to enter into a kind of soul rest that gives us rest in the midst of the hard things of life that we are carrying. True hardship with God's presence, God's power through the spirit. And if you look at Jesus's life again, you may have some questions because Jesus took on the hard things of life. And if you look at the way that his story ends before the Easter Sunday, you see that Jesus was burdened. He was betrayed by all of his friends and left with almost no one besides his own mom and best friend. That he was beaten, he was bruised, he was bleeding sweat in the garden because he was so anxious because of all the things that he was carrying. He got himself killed by the very authorities that he spoke against like the Pharisees and like Rome. This does not look like a triumphant success story from a self-help book. No. But it's because he bore your yoke. 
He bore your way of life that led to death. He bore the burdens that you have carried and he bore the weight of all your anxieties, the weight of the depression that you hold in your heart, your trauma, your grief, and every bad thing that has ever done to you and every bad thing that you've ever done that no one else knows about. Jesus put them around his neck and bore them. He put them around his neck and bore your yoke so that you, all of us, could take his. So come to him. The invitation is to accept the exchange of yokes. His way of life, it says in this text, his way of life is rooted in his nature, gentle and lowly, humble, meek, that Jesus loves you and he made himself low so that through us recognizing our need, through us coming to him, that we would be lifted up that we enter into a, a death like his so we could experience a resurrection like his. And I love, I love our faith in so many ways, but one of the ways that I love it is just the seemingly contradictory things that can be held together. Jesus's invitation to rest involves a work instrument, a yoke. And Jesus's grace that we receive only comes through an instrument of death, which brings life, which is the cross a work instrument that brings rest and an instrument of death that brings life. So today we're going to respond. Uh, and we respond here at church in four different ways. Uh, first way that we respond, I'm the singing guy. So I got to highlight singing for a second. You know that like when I lift my hands, it's not because I'm extra spiritual. It's actually because I'm not and I need God to come through. We lift our hands because the truth that we can express through our bodies is often in spite of what we are feeling in our hearts. And the truth that we sing, just like when we read our profession of faith, when we go through confession every week, uh, it's to speak truth over a lot of the lies and the yokes that we've attached to ourselves. That's what corporate worship is. It forms us into the way of Jesus and it unites our hearts to each other. So we sing. We give, and this one's self-explanatory. We give much because we've been given much. Simple as that. We've been given all things in Jesus. He holds all things together. So we've been given all things. We take communion for those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room. We proclaim Jesus's death. He says uh, to his disciples in the upper room during the last supper, do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread, which is my body broken for you. Take the wine or the wine of the grape juice in our case, uh, which is my blood poured out for you. These are representative of a greater reality. Jesus has consecrated, set these things apart to be holy so that we may experience his presence here and now and proclaim the gospel every time we come together. What a gift. And at last we pray. And I'd invite you to respond through prayer today. Uh, maybe, maybe you're a Christian and you just feel like you've really uh, been trying to earn or you've really attached something to this invitation of Jesus. I'd invite you to come down and pray with our prayer team, one of our pastors. Prayer is not a thing that you respond to just when your life is falling apart. Prayer is a thing that all of us need, that I need, that you need. So come pray. If you're a Christian, come pray. And if you have yet to take Jesus up on his invitation, why not today? Why not now? 
I'd encourage you to come down and pray. Our prayer team, our pastors would be able to walk you through whatever you need and point you to life that really is life, which can only come through Jesus, not through self-effort, not through self-help, not through anything else, not by law, but through the new law, which is the love and grace of Jesus. So would you stand? We're gonna pray together and then we're gonna respond to Jesus who is gentle and lowly and humble in heart. And he's inviting you and beckoning you now toward him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And God, we thank you for the beautiful tension of a work instrument that actually brings rest and an instrument of death that somehow, some way brought us life. So Lord, have your way in this time. Help us to all respond. Help us to look inward. But God, there are moments right now with your people that you are beckoning them toward you. You are calling all people to yourself, Jesus. So help us to respond. Help us to sing. Help us to give you the glory and praise. And uh, I just pray the simple prayer. Come Holy Spirit, have your way. Have your way, Lord. Amen. Let's respond.